Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of Once Saved, Always Saved. And today's program is a continuation of the previous one where I began to address common verses that are referred to when people will raise their concerns about whether or not a person can keep or lose their salvation, whether or not a person can turn away from God and reject the salvation that they have. I'm taking some time to address some of the specific verses. I certainly will not be able to address all of the verses that people refer to. But through these verses, I believe I will be able to give enough information that if a person understands the differences between the Old and the New Covenants, if they understand the issues that the Lord Jesus was addressing when he went to speak with the people at the time that he was conducting his ministry, if you understand the struggles of the early church, then I believe that you will be able to look at any verse in the Scriptures and address it when it comes to these kinds of discussions. So in this program, I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. In verse 21 it says, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents, and cause them to be put to death. In verse 22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. It's that word saved at the end of verse 22 that people will normally poke at a little bit, and they will say, now it says that if you do not endure to the end, then you are not going to be saved, because it says, by condition, he who endures to the end. You have to endure all the way to the end, because if you fail to endure appropriately, adequately, as you are expected to endure all the way to the end, then in the end, if you don't quite make it all the way, you won't be saved. That's the position that people will sometimes take when it comes to Matthew chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. Now, first of all, I don't think that he's talking about salvation in the context of whether a person is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven or not. I don't. What I see here is that a person is experiencing persecution. Not everyone has experienced this kind of persecution, but he is describing a scenario in which a person is experiencing persecution for their faith. If you are experiencing persecution, it's not going to last forever. It will end. You will reach the end of that persecution at some point. It won't be an eternal experience. Endure endure all the way to the end. You're going to be saved from the persecution. He doesn't say you're going to be saved in the context of are you going to enter into heaven or hell. He's talking about being saved from the persecution. It is a statement of encouragement, to be encouraged. Be encouraged because you are going to be saved as you endure this persecution, know and understand 
that you will be saved. It will happen. This will not go on forever. It's difficult to embrace this if you have not experienced significant suffering in your life. For those of us who have experienced significant suffering, we know what it means to go into suffering, to experience it, and on occasion think that there's no end to this. It's very easy to enter into a state of absolute despair, not knowing when it will end and having a hard time embracing the idea and the reality that it will eventually end. It can be very hard when going through difficult times to keep that in mind. So to me, this is a statement that the Lord Jesus makes in order to encourage those who will end up being persecuted. Not everyone will, but to encourage those who will be persecuted Let them know that there will be an end to it, and eventually they will be saved. There is a parallel passage to this found in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13. I'll go ahead and read that one next. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. A similar verse, as was found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 21, that in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of all the persecution, the hatred, all that the people would experience... They will be saved in the end. To me, this is a statement of encouragement. But there are people who will read this and say, from verse 13, this is Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. They will say, if you don't endure to the end in the way that I think you should endure, if you don't endure in the sense that maybe you renounce Christ, for example, if you renounce him for some reason, now listen, I know the struggle of whether we renounce our faith or not. I can recall in my early days in the faith as I was young in Christ that I asked myself this question. I asked the question of myself, would I be willing to die for the faith that I have embraced? After I embraced the gospel, I recognized what it was, I recognized the truth of it, and I embraced that. I decided that I would commit my life to that which I saw was true. I still had to be honest and recognize that there might be some forms of torture that I would not be willing to go through, and I probably would end up renouncing my faith and then repent later. I probably would do that, and I want you to know that I felt really bad about that. One day, many years later, I revisited the question, and for some reason there was a dramatic change to the extent where I thought, well, of course I would never deny my faith no matter what the torture would be. What happened? What was the difference? I honestly do not know outside of the fact that somehow through my walk with the living God, living my faith for many years, somehow in some way he did a work in my heart that changed and transformed me to the extent where I would be willing to do that. But it did take time. It was an act of God. It was a work of God. If you don't think that you would endure in that way, Perhaps one day he'll do a work in your heart as well. Maybe he won't. That's his decision. 
Those are the kinds of things that he decides in terms of how he works with his people on an individual level. But I honestly do not see this subject here in Matthew chapter 10 or in Matthew chapter 24. I don't see that here in terms of the subject of enduring to the end in the sense that you do so in a complete honorable way as we would expect you to, as people who esteem to be the authorities would expect you to. I don't see that subject here. To me, it is nothing more than an encouragement to say that you will get through it. It will not last forever. Just endure. And I believe a good way to interpret this would be to say, endure the best way you can, because in the end, you will be saved through it. And you will also be saved through entering into the kingdom of heaven, not just from this persecution, but from the world entirely. Now, of course, there is a lot more to say about Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13. I will come back to this in just a minute. Before I do that, I want to go up to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. And then I'll come back to Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he makes a statement concerning this child that the child had achieved or was displaying a certain attitude. Now, it's unlikely that this attitude would be present at all times with this child. I mean, I don't think that he picked a perfect child and said, be like this perfect child. If you were to examine the child over a period of time, maybe a few days, you probably would encounter some time, some point where the child was not expressing the kind of humility that the Lord Jesus was referring to. He might decide to assert himself in a proud, confrontational, selfish way, in which case you would probably not want to use him as an example when it comes to this kind of discussion. In other words, the humility was a temporary expression. So if humility is a temporary expression, then so also salvation would be a temporary expression, certainly, if the criteria is that you are extremely humble, as the child that he was referring to. If your salvation, if your entrance into the kingdom of heaven If you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, as he expresses in verse 3, if that is going to happen, and the criteria to get in there is your humility, then chances are you're never going to make it. And honestly, I believe that that's the point. It's my opinion that during this time in his ministry, he was explaining to people that if you want to be evaluated, if you would like the criteria to be that your humility determines whether you are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven or not, you certainly will never make it, ever, if that is the criteria, which is why it was necessary for the Lord to institute different criteria, the criteria of grace and mercy. So for those who would point to this and say that you cannot be assured of your salvation because you might not have the humility 
that is necessary in order to be saved, not have the adequate humility for the adequate amount of time in your life, well, then I can guarantee you there's no one who will ever meet that criteria. You might as well just give up. Let it go. The one who might proclaim that, who may suggest that, certainly would not meet this criterion. So who do they think they are suggesting that they might make it into heaven and you might not? Why don't they just live in their own uncertainty? They don't have to find other people and convince them that they have to be uncertain as they are personally. It's not necessary. I don't think that he was establishing the criteria according to the new covenant here. To me, when he says in verse 3, And said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, that that was the criteria of the old covenant, that you must be converted and become humble and be like this little child and do whatever he tells you to do. You must repent and obey and never sin, that kind of thing. That's the message that he's communicating because that is the message to communicate during this time in his ministry as he's relating to people, the people who believed that they had achieved enough humility that they had achieved enough endurance, that they had achieved enough holiness, such that they had established already a guaranteed place in the kingdom of heaven because of their repentance, obedience, lifestyle, and attitudes. The Lord came to say, no, it's not going to be enough. You will never make it using that criteria. That was his ministry. Okay, going back into Matthew chapter 24. In verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In verse 10, And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Now, this could very well be people who claim to be Christians. It could very well be the case. People who are part of a church, and they may just simply hate each other. They may be offended. They may betray one another. I will acknowledge that. I can understand that people can be like that. In verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Probably they're in the church as well. Absolutely. I would be surprised if that did not occur. In verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I can see that happening also. That because of the behavior of individuals, Love will certainly grow cold. It will be difficult to express love towards someone who has betrayed you, who has offended you, who has sought the means by which you can be killed. I can understand that that can be a problem. But you have to deal with the question of, are these people truly saved or not? You have to deal with that question. I explained this in the previous programs, that just because a person claims to be a Christian... Just because a person is a member of a church, just because a person memorizes a bunch of Bible verses, learns the churchy vocabulary, and gets along with a lot of people, that doesn't mean that they really are saved. It doesn't mean that they're real believers. If you don't believe me, wait until you encounter someone, because there are lots of people who do this, encounter someone who esteems to be a Christian, but then one day they do not. Find a person like that, go and ask them, what they understood about the gospel. Ask them to explain to you what the gospel is. That will tell you if that person 
was really saved or not. Because if they do not believe in the gospel, then how can they be saved to begin with? They're just a bunch of actors pretending to be somebody who they are not. They cannot be born again until they understand what it means to be born again, embrace that, and live that out. This is a real problem. I explained this in the previous programs, that I have done this. I make a point to do this. I do. Whenever I discover or encounter someone who claims that they were once a Christian and now are not, I quiz them. I ask them, give me an explanation of what you believe about the Lord Jesus. What did you believe about him? How did you see him? What did you understand about the gospel? What did you understand about the differences between the Old and the New Covenants? Tell me about law and grace. Tell me about forgiveness. And without exception, I always get answers that explain to me, that show me, that this person thought they were a Christian. They might very well have thought that, but they most certainly were not, from what I can tell. And so I do not see a case of an individual losing their salvation when they never had it to begin with. This has to be acknowledged. This is true. There are people like that. And I will allow for the possibility that there might be a person who does understand the truth, who does understand the gospel and is truly turning away. They're making a decision to reject God. I will acknowledge that there could very well be. It is possible that that might occur. But I will have to say with great conviction out of the many people who I have encountered, I really don't expect personally to ever meet anyone like that myself. I don't expect it, considering how many people I have met with, spoken with, sought out, investigated. I simply don't think that I'm ever going to encounter somebody like that. But I will allow for the possibility, and I will wait patiently for that one person who I believe would qualify for that kind of a definition, in which case I will ask the Lord for further clarification concerning this subject. But until then, I have a position. I believe my position. And I stand on my position and I proceed with living my life on the basis of what I see concerning salvation, the criteria by which a person can be saved, and that I do not see any way that a person can turn away from their salvation or lose their salvation when I consider the definition of salvation, as I explained in previous programs. So in verse 11, where it speaks about false prophets and they deceive many, yes, people can be deceived. They could very well be people who are saved, who get deceived. And they will have a place in the kingdom of heaven just because they were born again. And certainly they can be temporarily deceived. Temporarily in the sense that once they go before the Lord, I'm sure he'll make those necessary corrections. He will make decisions concerning that, and I trust that he will make a good decision. Continuing into Mark, Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Well, certainly if a person does not believe, then they're certainly not going to get baptized. But if a person does believe, we should expect a baptism to take place. That is how this is normally used. In verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And so people will say, well, there is criteria here to say that if you are going to be saved, you have to meet this additional criteria. All right, well, let's consider the possibility that maybe it is necessary to be baptized in water to be saved. 
Is that really such a big deal? I mean, anybody can do that, right? I mean, all you need is a, is a lake or a river or why not just use the bathtub or a hot tub or whatever. I mean, there are many ways that people can accomplish that. There are baptismals all over the place in many churches in our communities. And so people can do that if they want to. What's the big deal? If a person wants to do that, they can do that. But what people will often say is, is that if you do not do that, then you cannot be saved. You absolutely will not be saved because you did not jump into the bathtub and you were not properly dunked or properly sprinkled or properly prayed upon or whatever by the proper authority who had the right credentials. This is what people come up with. Now, listen, baptism is, of course, a very important subject, which is why in my radio archive, you will find hours of teaching that I have produced on the subject of baptism. I produced a very long series on the subject of baptism because there is a lot to say about that. But in this program, I certainly am not going to try to duplicate that content. I will just simply refer you to those programs. Do take the time to listen to those programs because it's a very important subject as it is related to the scriptures. In this case, all I'm going to say is with regards to Mark chapter 16, verse 16, The baptism that truly saves is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that the water baptism was used as the means by which the Lord would explain to us that there would be one baptism, and that one baptism would be the restoration of the Holy Spirit being baptized by the Holy Spirit, identified by Him and resurrected by Him. And that would certainly be necessary in order to be saved. And this is something that the Lord our God will do to all of those who believe. For those who believe, if a person believes, they will not be condemned because the Lord will take action to baptize an individual with his Holy Spirit. That is something that only he can do. No one else can do. And he is a good judge. He will make a good decision concerning who he will baptize and who he will not and when he will and when he won't. He can be trusted concerning that. So in this verse, while we have the word saved found here, in the context of baptism, I do not believe that this is a verse that can be used in order to say that there is additional criteria beyond belief in order to say that a person has to be saved. They have to obey this or they cannot be saved. I don't think that that is what he was intending here. In Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 61 to 62, it says, And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. People will say that this is criteria to say that if an individual is looking back, if they are turning back to their old way of life in some way, they are not fit for the kingdom of God. It is a way of saying that they are rejecting the kingdom of God. They are turning away from it. I don't think that that is what he had in mind. I really don't. Because what he's doing is he's speaking with a person who has not yet been saved. This person hasn't been saved yet. No one was saved until after the resurrection. It was then that the Holy Spirit was sent down to humanity. It was then 
that the disciples and those who were with them were saved through the restoration of the Holy Spirit, and it was confirmed and testified of through the gift of tongues so that people could speak to each other in a way that everybody could understand what each other was saying. That was the moment when people were actually saved. It was at that time that the people were entering into the kingdom of God. To say that a person is not fit for the kingdom of God because they make a decision like that, well, that might be true about this person. This person may not have been saved at all, ever. That could very well be the case. Maybe the Lord knew this individual to that extent where he was able to say, this person just isn't fit for the kingdom of God because they're looking back. But there was no salvation that he lost at that time. This individual was just simply given a commission. Commission in the sense that he was given something to do. He was given a mission by the Lord Jesus. And he says, you know what? I'll take care of that, but not quite yet. Not right now. Let me go do something else. The Lord said, you know, I need people who, when given a mission like that, they will let go of everything of anything that they might have in order to pursue the mission that I have given to them. Otherwise, they're just simply not fit for the kingdom of heaven. But this is the point, and that is that the person never entered in in order to fall away. We have lots of people like that around us. Lots of people get confronted with the Lord Jesus. They make a decision. Are they going to believe and follow him, or are they not going to believe and follow him? This is an example of someone who is not willing to follow him yet. Maybe he will in the future, but he's not making that decision now, and so he's simply not fit. Maybe he'll be fit later. This is not the right place to look for an example so that we can use this to show that a person can lose their salvation because this person never obtained it to begin with. I don't think it's a good idea to refer to someone like this in that context and try to extrapolate another truth from this because this just simply does not apply. This is something that you do have to be careful of because it is easy to find examples. We do find stories. We do find things that can be quite inspirational. But when we make an application like this, we have to compare it with our understanding of the gospel to determine whether that can fit within the boundaries of the new covenant. And I will continue in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net